0: Exodus chapter 20, just the first three verses. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, whenever we come to familiar portions of Scripture, there is a particular danger that familiarity might breed contempt, and, Lord, that our expectations might be set low with regard to our need to learn and to understand. How we pray, Lord, on the other hand, that we would be all the more dependent upon you and asking and, indeed, desperation that you would help us to see these things clearly and powerfully, and that we would be suitably corrected and instructed and blessed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. At long last, we come to the first commandment. Last time we were dealing with the preface to these things, as God reminds us of why he gets to tell us what to do, why he gets to be our lawgiver. And, and certainly there are many reasons for that. We come now to the not only the first commandment, but also to the first table of the law, Uh, You know that there are two tables, quite literally, there were two tablets of stone, but also two general tables. The first dealing with our interaction with God, and the second dealing with our interaction with man. And uh, the first table, as we're here, has to do with, with God. And as I say, this is summarized, as we saw in our reading in Luke chapter 10, by the first and greatest commandment, which is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. This first table of the law has to do with how to love the living God. Again, the Lord does not merely say he could have given commandment one, love me, commandment two, love other people. He could have done so, but did not leave us to our own sinful hearts as to how to love him or to love others, because he knows well what we would do with that. Instead, he not only tells us to love him, but also specifies precisely how to do so, and that's the moral law. Now, let me say that unbelievers are typically willing to receive, at least in theory, at least generally speaking, not when they break it, but generally speaking, they are willing to receive the first table of the law. And they would say, don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie. They would accept those things, generally speaking. But they don't receive the first table. That's because offenses against other people are usually in one way or another dealt with in this life. It's one of the main jobs of the state to punish those who wrong other people. And in general, they do this tolerably well. But even short of any involvement by the police or the state, people are going to let you know in various ways, if you have offended them, if you have sinned against them. And so we are in continual and most direct uh, reminder of our sins against people. But God is invisible. And God does not always immediately bring people to justice who sin against him. Uh, And, of course, we know all sin is ultimately against him. Sin against other people is sin against God as well. But it's usually the case that God defers these things under Judgment Day, and he's a long-suffering God. That's one of the things he describes himself as. And so people think that they can get away with it, that they can sin against God with impunity. Beloved, I would say even Christians sometimes are tempted along these lines, tempted to think that the second table is more important than the first in practice. Now, they wouldn't say that in theory, but in practice, That's the kind of the way they would weigh it, as if it would be a very serious matter to be caught in a lie. And it is a serious matter, but a relatively trivial matter to use the name of the Lord in vain or to use some image or to violate the Sabbath day. But, beloved, our obligation to God is greater and weightier than our obligation to man. And there is a reason why this first table of the law comes first. It is indeed more important. Much more could be said, but this is just the introduction to this table. And as we'll see in the third point uh, tonight, deal, it has to do with the rationale for the first commandment. God is going to avenge every sin against him. And indeed, the consequences, the negative consequences, will impact upon our children and upon our children's children. But on the other hand, it is absolutely impossible to even fathom the magnitude of God's goodness and mercy in the way that our, our children, not only a couple generations, but for a thousand generations, will be blessed as we keep this command and we honor God and we love him as we're called to do. Well, much more could be said, but let us move into this first commandment. That's our title very simply. Children, you could, you've got it easy. It's just the first commandment. That's the title with these three points. No other gods. Second, before me. Third, rationale. So first, no other gods. In verse 3, you shall have no other gods. Now, we cannot forget that this is referring back to the name. What are we talking about when we say you shall have no other gods? What is he talking about? Well, the God that he explains and delineates and defines back in verse 2, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And we mentioned last time, as creator, he is the one God who created all things. It is a covenant Lord who reveals himself by that name, Lord, to his own people, and redeemer, the one who brought them out of the land of Egypt. It's that God, and no false one. And incidentally, this means the triune God. There is no other and so do Christians and Muslims worship the same God is sometimes a question that is asked in our day. Well, um, they say, Muslims say, that Allah has no son. But we know that the Lord God reveals himself as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are eternally one God. So it sounds like to me that we were talking about two very different gods. Anyhow, this triune God, this creator, this Lord, this Redeemer, is that one God that the commandment refers to. So we need to be very careful that we say, Well, you know, if people ask maybe Jehovah's Witnesses at least, you know, they are keeping this commandment by believing in one God. No no they don't, because the one God is defined by those terms that He gives here and throughout the rest of the Bible. This is the one true and living God that we worship. But it says other gods. So does that mean that, the, that God acknowledges that there are actually other gods? He is the higher God, but there are other gods? No. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, uh, and let me say, by the way, the answer is yes and no. Are there other gods? Yes and no. In their actual being, in their actual existence, the answer is no. They don't actually exist. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8... Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, meaning false gods, another word, idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other god but one. So in absolute terms, of course there's no other god. In absolute terms, no other god exists. So there's no other gods. But it's clear that we can make things to be gods who are not. We can treat things and people and all the rest of it, creatures, as gods gods, and we can make idols. That's why Paul goes on to say in that same passage in 1 Corinthians 8, but even if there are so many so-called gods, so let's not say gods, but so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords. The reality is, of course, people have made many false gods. All you have to do is go to the British Museum and you'll see a, a litany, a history of false gods that the nations of this world have created. You encounter many of them in the course of the Old Testament, and there are many such false gods today. They're not really in existence, but they're made out to be gods. Well, indeed, there are many. For our hearts, as Calvin puts it, are idol factories, not not, uh, idols, uh, not sort of um, custom bespoke uh, places that merely put out one idol per year. But they are factories, fully automated. And without us much thinking about it, our own fallen, sinful human nature that remains in us simply produces these idols if we're not careful. And he says, or rather, um, I'll, I'll, I'll speak of uh, Calvin's exposition of this later. But this brings us then, of course, to the prohibition of that commandment. No other gods, secondly, before me. That's the point. You shall have no other gods before me. No idols. That's the point of this. There aren't really false gods, but there are many made-up gods, so-called gods, these idols, and you shouldn't entertain them. You shouldn't have them. You shouldn't permit them to be. Now, many people wrongly understand before me as meaning priority. You understand how it could be taken that way. No other gods before me. And basically, it, it, it's it's like... Uh, uh, the idea that as long as you don't, you can have these other gods, maybe you have 20 of them, but as long as the one true and living God is here and the rest of these gods are down here, that's okay, as long as you give God first place. That's not before me. But that's actually a very terrible misunderstanding, misinterpretation of this commandment. Now, I have to admit that our translations don't help. Because you read it in, in English and it allows for that kind of ambiguity. But the, the command is better translated, you shall have no other gods in my presence. In my presence. Okay? They, they can't just be prioritized if they exist in my presence. That is itself the problem. And God is everywhere present. And so there's absolutely no possibility of having other gods harmlessly on the side in addition to having the one true and living God. Their mere existence, let me say this, their mere existence at your permission in his presence, and he is everywhere presence, is the problem. That's the prohibition. No other gods. Now, of course, all the commands have both negative and positive implications. So we're saying don't have any idol. But we understand it's both negative and positive. Now, we'll deal with this mainly in the application section, but let me now just read from Calvin's explanation of the first commandment in the institutes, a very excellent thing that we recently used in our ethics class at the seminary. He says this When duly imbued with the knowledge of Him, the whole aim of our lives will be to revere, fear, and worship His Majesty, to enjoy a share in His blessings, to have recourse to Him in every difficulty to acknowledge, laud, and celebrate the magnificence of his works, to make him, as it were, the sole aim of all our actions. Next, we must beware of superstition by which our minds are turned aside from the true God and carried to and fro after a multiplicity of gods. Therefore, if we are contented with one God, let us call to mind which was formerly observed that all fictitious gods are to be driven far away, and the, the worship which he claims for himself is not to be mutilated. Not a particle of his glory is to be withheld. Everything belonging to him must be reserved to him entire. And I think he gets to the heart of the matter. It is not merely, well, as I've said, that we put a God in front of the true living God. It's not even that we have any other false gods in his presence at all. All must be done away with. And mainly that the entirety of our lives and object, we we must seek to bring him glory. Even withholding an element of his glory, even giving that glory to, to someone in this world apart from God, that is a violation of this commandment. All glory and honor belong to the one true and living God, and he does not share that with another. And in whatever way that we deny or deprive him of these things, we are violating this first commandment. Well, we'll say more in the application, but let's move to the rationale. No other gods before me. And thirdly, the rationale for this commandment. Now, let me say that it doesn't have its own rationale because the first two commandments are so closely interrelated, meaning who it is that you receive as God and how you worship this one true God. That's the first and second commandments. They share. They're so close together that they share a common rationale in verses five and six. He says in verse five, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commands. In other words, he cares. In other words, it's not like the the false God that the world wants to talk about, that Hollywood makes of some benign, harmless old man that couldn't harm anyone and wouldn't want to. But rather, we understand that God absolutely cares and will not hold people guiltless who sin against him. Our own sinful hearts, by the way, it's not just pop culture that wants to think of, of God in this way. Our own sinful hearts like to think that we can sin against him with impunity. Isn't that the way that we think? Isn't it true that even in our lives we do a little calculus to think, okay, now at least we're tempted to. I hope that we're not actually involved in this. But for a moment, we are tempted to make a little calculation to say, how likely am I to, to get away with this? Will this particular person in authority over me let me slide? Isn't that the way we sometimes think? And friends, God is saying, I'm not going to let you slide. He is saying, in fact, he identifies himself in three different ways. He says he is jealous. He is very much like a jealous husband. And friends, if you think that jealousy is inherently bad, you're wrong. There is a good and pure jealousy that has to do with covenant relationships. And it is right for a husband to, in a right way, be jealous with regard to his wife. And there is a right way in which our covenant God is jealous for us. He has claimed us in all the world for ourselves. He has put his covenant name upon us. He has put the name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit upon us in baptism. We belong to him. We have his ring on our finger, as it were. Bestowed his spirit, his Holy Spirit upon us if we're believers. And for us to go a-whoring after other gods, that's the way that the Bible describes it, is not something he takes lightly. He's a jealous God. That's his fundamental uh, way that he he considers relationship to himself. And he will avenge sin. He says that. So it is his characteristic and attribute of him that he is a jealous God, and we should not be embarrassed of that. But also he declares very plainly that he's going to avenge sin against him. He says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. And so he takes these things so seriously. It's not just that there will be consequences upon you yourself, but even upon your children, grandchildren, maybe even great-grandchildren. But, beloved, on the other hand, he will reward those obey him. Obey this great commandment to love him. In Whatever way that we understand him to be a jealous God, to be a just God, to be a holy God, one whom you cannot sin against with impunity, you cannot think you're going to get away with it. No one ever has. No one ever shall. Let me say that he makes a contrast with that and says, I want you to know I am not a God to trifle with. And you dare not sin against me. But on the other hand, on the other hand, it is not an equal thing, but a thing much, much higher that he rewards those who love him, rewards those who do embrace him him as their God. He says, I will pour out the heavens and blessing upon you. I, in fact, not just not just constrained to a few generations. And again, our, our translation doesn't help us here. We're not talking about, I show, I'm going to visit the iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generation, but I'm going to show mercy to thousands of people. As if one time he's talking about generations and now he's talking about numbers of people. In both cases, he's talking about numbers of generations. And he's saying, actually, my mercy is going to extend to a thousand generations to my people. Because actually there's no limit to the covenant line, to the covenant people of Abraham. He shows mercy from one generation to the next until the end of the world. That's how great is his mercy and goodness and and love. We have to always think it is not merely, you know, the calculus is twofold, isn't it? That we do this with people. How likely are we to get away with this? And we make that calculus as to whether we should transgress them or not. But we also say, how likely am I to be rewarded? If, in fact, I am uh, affirming and and demonstrate love and obedience, is this going to do me anything? Is this going to help me? Friends, let me say, it will certainly help you. God plainly declares that there is no greater thing that you could do for yourself than to obey this first commandment, because he is absolutely going to bless you and yours until the end of the world and on into eternity. It's the greatest thing you could possibly do. Well, that's the rationale. More could be said. and Let's turn now to the application, because actually this is the bulk of the sermon. As I mentioned, there's always duties required and sins forbidden. It's just like the, the series in Deuteronomy a long time ago. when we, we dealt with it and we turn right to our larger catechism and we look into ways in which the, the, the duties required and the sins forbidden are enumerated uh, having to do with this commandment. Well, let me just choose six of the duties required found in the larger catechism 104. The duties required in the first commandment are the knowing and acknowledging of God to be the only true God and our God and to worship and glorify him accordingly. So there's knowing him. That's what we saw uh, in, in various places throughout scripture, one of them being Deuteronomy 4.39. Know this day and consider it in your heart that the Lord himself is God in heaven above and the Lord beneath and there is no other. That's part of keeping the commandment, simply knowing God. What use is theology? What use is a study of? Of these true things, well, it's keeping the first commandment, actually. You know, um, I I know that there are organizations, very trivial organizations, that would be offended if you didn't know something about them. and you had any kind of uh, inclination or, or so forth, that they would be offended if you didn't know what their little symbol meant or their little motto meant or something like that. How much more so the living God? How much more so should we give ourselves to knowing the one true and living God? There's no greater thing we can do than to study him. We should know him. Believing him. You must believe that which you know. Hebrews 11.6, but without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So it's not just knowing. Intellectually and in isolation, but believing that which you know. And, and every day our, our faith should be on the increase. Faith even the size of the mustard seed saves. But God would have us to know more and to embrace more of him day by day, knowing him, believing him, and loving him. I mentioned this is part of that great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. And it does no good to know the God Without loving the God that we know, and God would have us certainly to know Him and to love Him. And delighting and rejoicing in him is not just his knowledge and his love and it's also joy. God is continually communicating himself to us in order that we might not just know Him intellectually, not even that we might believe and love him, but actually that we would delight in Him. As mentioned this morning, that our joy would continuously grow. What? Worse Condemnation can there be upon any organization when everyone is miserable. Right? You go and maybe they're actually doing the things that they're supposed to do because they're paid for it or will get in trouble, but they're miserable. You don't want that. God doesn't want that. And he says, I want my people to delight in me, not to be have distaste for what they learn of me, but to love it and to rejoice in it. Delighting and rejoicing him, fearing him. It's repeated several times. Well, for instance, in Leviticus, Leviticus twenty-five, seventeen. But you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God, Exodus nine, thirty. But as for you and your servants, I know that you will not yet fear the Lord God. We need to fear him. It's respect due to, to one who is absolutely in authority and being zealous for him. We should be zealous for our God. These are the duties required, and there are many others to be added to it. I hope that's enough. And secondly, there are the sins forbidden. Long list of sins forbidden. And let me just consider some of the most prominent. And this is larger catechism, now 105. The sins forbidden in the first commandment are, first of all, atheism. Denying that there is a God. You know that the fool in in, in Psalm 14.1, the fool has said in his heart there's no God. Well, that's a really absolute sin against uh, this commandment. Atheism. And... Uh, if you don't know much about the Psalms and Proverbs, you might think that a fool is someone who's just not very clever. But a uh, fool doesn't mean that, of course, in the biblical sense. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. It is a willful and culpable ignorance of the living God, just as we have it in Romans chapter 1, where it speaks of people everyone really deep down in, in their hearts knows the living God. but They twist everything that they could know about him. They see him in creation, they they know him in their own conscience, but they twist these things, as it says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that he made. Meaning creation, of course his creation didn't make itself of course god made it and his goodness and his omnipotence and omniscience these attributes of god are absolutely seen even in the creation his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and godhead so that they are without excuse because although they knew god they did not glorify him as god nor were thankful but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Well, children, we sometimes watch things like that uh, BBC uh, series, don't we? What's called Planet Earth. It's uh, amazing, and I hear they're doing a new one as well. But there is one minor problem with it. It's this, uh, this guy who, who does the, the narration is uh, an absolute zealous evolutionist. And he cannot keep himself, even in the most, the the situation which most obviously scream out that a a God, a good God created these things and designed them precisely to be the way they are. He tries to find some twisted way of saying how they somehow created themselves to do this. Well, that's a violation of this commandment. We need to acknowledge God and to glorify him and to be thankful in the things that God has made among many others. So it's atheism, it's unbelief, not believing in the one true God and in Jesus Christ Christ's Son. That is a sin. It's not the only sin. Some Arminians think the only sin is not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. No, there's lots of sins, actually. But it does mean that this, it's true. This is absolutely a sin. And does not mean that people who call themselves Christians... Uh, are not guilty of this sin? Well, let me, let me say um, that that's not the case either. I'll just go ahead and skip to this point, which I was going to have uh, a little bit uh, separately. But, but let me say that unbelief is a sin, and even believers in the Lord Jesus Christ may well be guilty of it. Okay? Because salvation by grace alone through faith alone is not a different way of saying salvation by works. All right? So don't think in your, your mind that by my believing in Christ I'm keeping this commandment and therefore I'm saved by my obedience to this commandment. The commandment is that you should believe in the one true living God. And and some people are tempted to think your obedience to the command saves. But the question is have you actually kept this commandment even in this one aspect of the commandment truly and completely by believing in Christ? And the answer is Well, I guess I'd ask the question, is your faith absolutely total and complete? And I would say the answer is probably no. The Lord makes it very clear that any amount of true faith is saving, but that even faith the size of a mustard seed is what saves. That's what's so beautiful about it. Faith isn't a work. It's not that we achieve a high level of faith and therefore are saved, but that it is an instrument by which we are saved by grace And so that even the smallest amount of faith, it's binary, it's either on or it's off. And friends, let me say this. I would propose to you that no one in this world, in this lifetime, has absolutely perfect faith. That That would require you, first of all, to know the incomprehensible God from top to bottom with no exception. There could be no hole whatsoever in your knowledge of theology. No one can claim that. And then you would have to Uh, uh, receive it perfectly with all of your soul and you'd have to entrust yourself absolutely without exception to these things and i doubt whether that's the case so i think that we even sin in this regard very often and unfortunately so it's atheism it's unbelief it's absolutely a sin for both those inside and outside the church it's not a vouching him for God and our God. In other words, you know that there's a God, you believe in him, but you don't want other people to know it. You want to be the stealth Christian. Well, we can't do that. The Bible tells us we must confess Christ, Romans ten nine that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved, and more explicitly in Matthew 10, therefore whoever confesses me before men, him also I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So if we try to be stealth Christians, not only is that rather pathetic, but it's a breaking of the first commandment. What else? Heresy. False theology, error, misbelief, all these things are also violations of this first commandment. Another reason to know theology. Not only the positive command that you should know as much as possible about the true God, but lest you harbor some false theology, some heresy. That's a a sin. You can't do it. And so heresies are listed among the works of the flesh in Galatians 5. 2 Thessalonians 2 mentions these. These things, that for this reason God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe a lie. And let me say that that these false theologies always come with a strong delusion and there's much attraction to them. And that is why we should not indulge them for a moment. To do so is sinful. Heresy, false theology, error, but also ignorance. Not only having knowing something that is untrue but not knowing something that is true. It's the other, it's the other side of the coin of the positive duty to, to know God There's a, the, that ignorance is itself a sin. Ignorance about God is sinful. And pride. How about that? Did you know that pride? Pride is, is, is rightly accounted. Very serious sin. And in what commandment do we put it in? What box do we put it in? Well, we put it in absolutely The top. The first commandment. That's why it's such a serious sin. Thinking that you're something great. It's All the same, by the way, it's just, it's just a different, different version of the mindset that Satan had. In Isaiah 14, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For why? What did he say? Well, you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God I will also sit in the mount of the congregation on the further sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. That is in the heart of Satan, the great enemy of God. He wants to be like God. He thinks that he is like God. And that's pride. That's the, the sin of the devil. The snare of the devil is pride. And that's why we must avoid it with everything in us. Well, just to to finish this up, lukewarmness. Did you know that? Lukewarmness is also a sin against the first commandment because we're not loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, and soul, and strength, but we're doing it half-heartedly, and God's not pleased with it. And that's why he says in Revelation 3.16, So then, because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. It's not at all a pleasing thing or pleasant thing. Let me say in all places, look, every culture has sins that it particularly struggles with outside and even inside the church. There are things that some cultures are more susceptible with. We happen to live in this one, so let me say that this is a sin to which we in this culture are probably more susceptible to. To think that somehow being a lukewarm Christian is a good thing. But if we can somehow be like everyone else in every way imaginable and yet also carry on a Christian uh, belief and, and somehow manage to live our whole life without offending anyone, then that is what God calls us to. It's not. It's a sin. You understand that? To fail to be zealous for your God, it is sinful. And God has no respect for those who are <coughs> lukewarm. Lukewarmness. And finally, discontent discontent you know what it says in Hebrews thirteen five. let your conduct be without covetousness be content with such things as you have for he himself has said I will never leave you nor forsake you why you understand the, the logic of what it's saying there It's saying that when you're discontent which means you're not satisfied with what you have you think you ought to have something that you don't whether material things whether relationships whether gifts all these things, whenever you're discontent, you're, you're saying to God, you've not dealt with me justly. Or even worse, that you have left me, you have forsaken me. And that's the signal that you're giving. Again, you compare this to a family. And if the children of a family are all, with one voice, moaning and bewailing and saying how hard done, how hard done by they are by their parents, that's, that's impugning the character of their parents much more so with God. And he is, is not pleased when we are discontent. No, we're told in 1 Timothy verse, or chapter 6, verse 6, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out, and having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Well, these are the main duties required and the main uh, sins forbidden in this commandment and I hope that we have been convicted by the reality that we've not kept this commandment so far from this being the one commandment that we've kept maybe it's the supreme commandment that we haven't kept we pray my prayer and my intent is not that we leave you without hope on this but actually this is why Christ died This is why he was put to death on that cross. And the fact that he rose again the third day, as we consider this morning, is proof that his atoning sacrifice is sufficient, even for the most egregious (coughs) sins imaginable against the living God. And all of our ignorance, all of our lukewarmness, our discontent, even our our heresy and error, even our, our atheism and unbelief, Christ died that we might be saved and truly salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we must confess we cannot possibly get through our consideration of this commandment, our consideration of what it means and of the rationale behind it that you are truly a jealous God and you will not let these things slide. And we certainly cannot let our consideration of all the, the duties required and the sins forbidden. How can we get through these things apart from being cut to the heart and convicted of our, of our great sin? But Lord, we are thankful that we are not as those who are without help and without hope. But those who already know that Christ is risen those who already know that there is salvation by grace alone through faith alone and even the least degree of true faith will save us. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't be content with the least degree. We pray that we'd be continually increasing in our knowledge of the one true and living God and believing and loving and rejoicing in all that we grow in our knowledge of. Lord, we are thankful. We are saved in the meantime as we continue to grow in these things by even the least degree of faith. Well, Lord, we pray that all here might believe and all here might seek and, and indeed vow to be renewed in their obedience of this first commandment. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <laughs>